Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. And welcome. Our next stop on our cross-country tour is the Mile High City, Denver, Colorado. If you've ever flown into or out of Denver, you've likely had a chance to experience one of the most infamous buildings in the state of Colorado for yourself, the Denver International Airport. The horrors of airline food and endless security lines aside, the Denver Airport is rife with tales of dark intentions and conspiracies of apocalyptic magnitude. The airport began to draw attention long before it was even finished. By the time it opened in February of 1995, it was 16 months behind schedule and a whopping $2 billion over budget. Funny thing was, though, it wasn't immediately evident to the general public where that much extra time and cost came from. But humans have a habit of filling in the gaps in our understanding with our own stories and assumptions. And some were quick to form their own ideas. Ideas, however, that didn't entirely come from nowhere. On March 19, 1994, almost a full year before it would finally open to the public, a dedication ceremony was held at the Jeppesen Terminal of the airport. As part of that ceremony, a time capsule was placed in the terminal, covered by an inscribed capstone. Sounds normal enough. But part of the inscription on the capstone, beneath the dedication to the people of Colorado in 2094, who will have the privilege of opening the capsule, are two symbols. A square and a compass, framing a capital letter G. That just so happens to be the symbol of the Freemasons, probably one of the most well-known and largest fraternal societies in the world, 
which is often considered a secret society for its mysterious practices and rituals. No surprise, then, that immediately below that symbol are the names of two Freemason Grand Masters. All well and good, right? A stone block carved by Master Masons. Seems perfectly logical. Well, if you know anything about the Freemasons, you probably know of their supposed connection to a little something called the New World Order. A theory that suggests there's a secret organization that's been manipulating society from the shadows for centuries, with the goal of installing a single, all-powerful world government. Okay, sure, but a symbol in a few names seems like a bit of a stretch to tie the airport to a doomsday conspiracy, right? It's not like there's anything there to suggest any deeper of a connection. Unless, well, someone were to name the commission in charge of creating the airport something like, oh, I don't know, the New World Airport Commission. And then, say, maybe carve that into the stone slab right below the Freemason symbol. That seems like enough coincidence to keep the imagination of just about any conspiracy theorist pretty well fed. But Denver Airport's strange, dark ties don't end there. There are some interesting stories about what lies beneath the Denver Airport, too. Remember how I mentioned the airport was well over time and budget? Well, a former construction worker from the airport claimed to be able to shed some light on why. A series of five multi-story buildings were built beneath the airport, he said, together with a complex network of tunnels. There are also rumors that those buildings were five failed attempts at construction for the airport that were buried rather than fixed or demolished. Perfect material for a clandestine underground lair, if you ask me. If you were into the conspiracy theory thing, this is where you'd probably assume the rooms and tunnels were either command bunkers for the New World Order or fallout shelters for billionaires and politicians. Then again, mysterious hidden underground structures are enough to fire up just about anyone's imagination. On the outside, the airport itself is more or less like any other. But look at the airport's runways from a bird's eye view. Squint just right, and the layout is noticeably swastika-like. Sure, there's a logical explanation that the runways can operate simultaneously like that, but that's not nearly as interesting. Inside the airport, there's no lack of ominous art that helps set the tone, either. A mural of a devil jumping out of a suitcase and a statue of the Egyptian god of death, Anubis, for starters. Some other, more controversial pieces have since been removed, like the mural that looks to show a Nazi officer in a gas mask, or children in front of a burning building, and kids gathered around a knife. It's unsettling, to say the least. But probably the most sinister-looking art installation of all comes before you've even reached the airport proper. Rearing high above the main boulevard leading into the Denver airport property is a statue known as Blue Mustang, or more colloquially, Blucifer. A huge horse painted bright pale blue, crisscrossed with red veins, and eyes that glow a bright 
ominous red, day and night. It's the stuff of nightmares. Clocking in at a height of 32 feet and weighing about 9,000 pounds, it's an intimidating sight, to say the least. With a frightening appearance like that, some people believe it's meant to represent the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, death. And that might be due to more than just its unsettling appearance. The statue has actually been directly responsible for at least one death, that of its creator, Luis Jimenez. While working hard to bring the statue to life, the completed head of the statue came free of its frame and fell, landing on Jimenez and severing an artery in his leg. Knowing the story of its creation definitely adds a whole new air to its devilish demeanor. On their own, all of these smaller tales and coincidences are fairly easy to explain away. But put them together, and it's easy to see why the legends of the Denver International Airport refuse to fade into the shadows. But I think it's time we cast some shadows of our own, don't you? Our first story for the evening comes to us from Paul Crenshaw. Paul Crenshaw's essay collection, This One Will Hurt You, is forthcoming from the Ohio State University Press. Other work has appeared in Best American Essays, Best American Non-Required Reading, The Pushcart Prize, anthologies by W. W. Norton and Houghton Mifflin, Oxford American, Glimmer Train, Tin House, North American Review, and Brevity, among others. You can follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Crenstorm. Children of the night, join me for Paul Crenshaw's We Were Not Burned at the Stake, a Tales to Terrify original. That's old world, the stake burning. As was mutilation by men who used God as their justification. In the old days they cut us and burned us. And all the villagers turned out to see the witches go up in flames. Which we did. Witches burn like any other body of flesh and bone and you can be sure I still hear the screams of my sisters echoing throughout time. My grandmother was burned in Cordoba, Spain, the same year Columbus landed in the New World, and my mother was murdered barely a month before the Spanish Armada sailed for England. I still say the priests hated women more than they loved their god, But I digress. That's Old World, the burning. In Salem, we were not burned. We were hung, most of us. Some of my sisters, whose names you cannot yet pronounce, lashed out as the life left them. 
their feet connecting with the heads of the fat priests and magistrates, their voices shaking the foundations of the earth. But we had been surprised and overwhelmed, and their necks turned purple and black before their voices could call chaos. The life left them, and the villagers went home to screw each other stupid. I know, because I cursed the children conceived that day. I cursed their names, and I cursed their births, and I cursed their blood, and I licked the tears from their father's eyes when they saw their malformed children slither out of the womb nine months later. I cursed them again after licking their tears, and many of them died inside after seeing their swollen offspring. And my sisters and I sang songs that were old when the Sphinx was blood and bone, though my sisters' voices were still stiff from the hanging. A few of us were pressed. We were held down by men, and rocks placed upon us until we could no longer breathe. They wanted us to confess our crimes, but we committed no crimes, for we do not believe in their gods nor their laws. Still, it was not a nice way to die. Think of harboring so much hate for women as to crush the very breath from them, to choke their voices shut. Some nights I still wake, thinking the stones are upon me. That night, I saw my life narrowing down to nothing. My vision waned. The moon hung above us, and that, of course, is the mistake they made. Apart from trying to kill us in the first place, for we can draw energy from the moon. So when the rocks were upon us, the ropes around our necks, we went still. We drew our consciousness from this mortal plane. We sent our souls to another space, and we survived. We always do, except the fire. My mother's screams still echo through space and time but her soul has gone because of the fire. That's one thing the myths got right. We have to burn. But let me dispel a few other myths as well. We are not ugly. We have no warts on our noses, nor stringy hair, nor crook in our bent backs. We do not have green skin. We can appear beautiful, if it meets our needs, but we are no more or less beautiful than any woman. What we are is, how do I say it, striking. We can also go unnoticed, and there's been plenty of that over the years. But our normal appearance is striking. Perhaps men sense our powers, which, by the way, come from a history so ancient it's not written down in any books. We were the first with the written word, 
long before the Egyptians pounded reeds into papyrus, long before the Sumerians carved symbols in wet clay. Our language is as old as the bones of the earth. We know the words of power, can call chaos from the darkness that formed the world. And we did. Believe me in that. We do not like cats. Well, Kara does. But only because they speak to her. The rest of us do not have familiars. We do not brew potions in great cauldrons, nor do we ride brooms, collect eyes of newt, or any other nonsense the ignorant repeat. Our line comes from the cradle of civilization. Before Babylon was more than a stone outpost, we are warriors. We have bronze skin and bronze wings and claws sharper than any sword. We have the words of power and the strength of the moon, and the only time men are a match for us is when they outnumber us ten to one. Which is just a word made up by men who are so small they let fear rule them, and so stupid they don't even know they are being ruled. They think themselves strong. They see their service as important. And they thought killing us would protect them. It did not protect them. Let me tell you what happened. The stones went down. My breath ceased. My spirit wandered for a while, and I heard the ancient language. My sisters and I comforted each other there in the darkness. We gathered our strength. For dying takes something out of a woman, same as giving birth. When we were ready, we spoke the words of returning. The villagers were stuffing each other in their small sad rooms, and my sisters and I awoke. We came careening back down into our mortal shells with the fury of a thousand stake fires, with all the fury of every one of us who has been persecuted and executed by men who believe power comes from their testicles, that their small, sad cocks command respect. We threw back the stones, burst out of the earth as if just born. We cut our sisters from the gallows with our sharp claws. We spread our bronze wings. Our eyes were blazing in the darkness. As I say, we cursed the children using the ancient words. The male children, that is. The women we left alone, along with the seeds inside them that would bloom into girl children for girl children are sacred. Know that, if you know nothing else. In the long history of the world, women have suffered enough. They've borne the swords of men since Adam ate of the fruit and blamed Eve for his weakness. And these were small, quiet women. They had no words of power, no talons, no wings. They were pressed down as surely as the rocks had crushed the life from my sisters. 
so we left them alone. We whispered in their ears that they would be set free now, and they held our hands in thanks. You will not have heard what we did to the men. We have had to hide over the years so we could not leave evidence of what we had done. Despite our powers, we are outnumbered. We have been chased in every corner of the globe, raped, murdered, our throats cut and wings clipped, our songs sliced forever short. So we could not sing our vengeance to the world. Rather, it has been whispered. And sometimes the whisper is stronger than the shout. Let me whisper what we did then. For you. There were a few men still lingering about the stones when we burst out of the earth. Our hung sisters twisted slowly from the gallows in the wind. Kara had been cut down and one of the men was using her body. And when she came awake, the shout that shook out of her shattered his soul. We were unable to find even the smallest shards. His ears bled and his eyes burst from him, and even in her weakened state with her throat black as forge fires, Kara shone like the goddess she is. The other men we descended on, our wings widespread. We cut them with our claws, we sliced them with our sharp wings. Kara, crazed from the returning, called down a storm of stone and steel, and her wings whipped through them like a whirlwind. The first men were still falling when more villagers came out. Kara was covered in blood. Her hoarse voice still hung in the night skies of this new world. Seeing her, some of the men dropped to their knees. I do not know if they were praying to their gods or begging for mercy. For Kara gave them time to do neither. She became a blur again, her wings spread out like six-foot swords. Lightning shot from her mouth, jumping from one man to the next. She shouted again, and men trembled in fear. We joined her then. It had been long and long since we had sought such vengeance. And I say to you now, we paid it back a hundredfold we held those men responsible for every act of unkindness offered to us down through the years. Every molestation, every murder and maiming. We punished the priests of old Chaldea for the stone tombs they sealed us in. We murdered the Mesopotamians for the mutilations of girl children born with a birthmark. We hung the Hittites for their blood rites the opening of young girls on their first blood day. I say we taught them blood. They feared the blood that comes from us, so we taught them to fear seeing their own blood outside their bodies. Their blood fed the Mother Earth, and our voices shook the stars. Some of the men brought muskets. Others brought torches. None of them touched us. 
Our skin shone like burnished steel, our wings were swords and shields, our voices trumpets heralding the last battle. Though we know it was not the last battle, ours is a battle that will never end, which is why we caress each other, why we hold our power close. It is for this we learned the words. It is for this we grew our wings. The magistrate, the one who had orchestrated our end, we gave to Kara. We found him hiding in his home. Kara still wore the rope around her neck. She wears it still. I will show you when you meet her. Over three hundred years later, she wears it still. We tied the magistrate to the rope, and Kara flew high into the sky. I do not know what words she said, but I suspect she told him of the priests of Chaldea, the Mesopotamians, the Catholic Church, the Spanish Inquisition. I suspect she whispered words that made him feel what it was like to be hounded across the whole world. She wanted him to feel powerless, to know there was nothing he could do that would stop what was happening to him. Perhaps she shaped her wings into a sword and made him feel what it was like to be entered without consent. Perhaps she whispered words that set him to pleading. Whatever she did, we were still waiting when his body fell. The first sun was rising above the far curve of the horizon. The remaining villagers were hiding in their homes. The magistrate screamed all the way down, though his voice held no power. Kara landed lightly beside what was left of him. She was still hoarse but strong enough to speak. When the sun shines, she said, voice shaking like a horn, tell the story of what happened here. Say your men died unexpectedly. Say that the women you accused of witchcraft died as well. Kara's eyes shone like the last phase of the moon. But at night, whisper to each other what really happened, that you may never forget. So they told the story as we wanted it told. Witches died. They did not tell that nine months later all boy children were born with eyes as black as the darkness my sisters slept in before the return. They had six toes on each foot, and the remaining men drowned them in the stream and if you ask me if I feel sorry for them, I only remind myself of the sewers of cities my sisters and I have slogged through to escape the ways of men. They also did not tell that we saved the souls of the men we killed. No, not saved in that sense. Took, I should say, kept. I keep the ones I took in a little cage— I carry it with me always. I take it out occasionally to look at. 
days when it seems the world is run by men so mad with power they will burn it all. The men seem so small inside it. Their penises are no larger than a speck of dirt. Their voices are no more than an insignificant sigh. And this keeps the darkness from overtaking me. When I see women stoned to death in the desert or raped in the dorm rooms of the Institutes of Learning, when I see girl children tossed into rivers in remote mountain villages, when men force themselves upon women who might have been my sisters if only they knew the words carved from the stones of the earth, in a time before time began. They sing to me, these little men in their cages. They plead for their eternal souls. And their words sound as sweet as the first running of the rivers, from the first rain to feed the dry earth. As the first morning the sun rose above the still cooling earth to push back the darkness. As the songs of all my sisters down from the ancient days of beginning. As beautiful as your song will be, my dear sweet child. That was Paul Crenshaw's We Were Not Burned at the Stake, as read by Josie Babin. Josie has a deep love for all things terror. That's why she chose an abandoned foreclosure as her first home purchase. When not hanging drywall or convincing herself that the noise she heard was just the house settling, she can be found in a lab convincing stem cells to cure diseases. In-between times are filled with playing outside in the San Diego sun, imposing snuggles on her two cats, and sometimes even her human companion. Narrating stories is a special treat that she enjoys immensely, and she hopes you enjoy listening to them. Thank you, Josie. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our second story is the first of four parts we'll be airing over the coming weeks. A classic tale from Arthur Mackin. Arthur Mackin was a Welsh author and mystic of the 1890s and early 20th century. He is best known for his influential supernatural fantasy and horror fiction. His novella, The Great God Pan, has garnered a reputation as a classic of horror, with Stephen King describing it as maybe the best horror story in the English language. He is also well known for The Bowman, a short story that was widely read as fact, creating the legend of the Angels of Mons. Mackin's stories have been translated into many languages and reprinted in short story anthologies countless times. His works are a significant part of the late Victorian revival of the Gothic novel and the decadent movement of the 1890s, often compared to the themes found in contemporary works like Robert Louis Stevenson's Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. Mackin was, according to one literary historian, the first writer of authentically modern horror stories, and his best works must still be reckoned among the finest products of the genre. Children of the Night, listen with me to part one of Arthur Mackin's The Great God Pan. One, the experiment. I'm glad you came, Clark. Very glad indeed. I was not sure you could spare the time. I was able to make arrangements for a few days. Things are not very lively just now. But have you no misgivings, Raymond? Is it absolutely safe? The two men were slowly pacing the terrace in front of Dr. Raymond's house. The sun still hung above the western mountain line but it shone with a dull red glow that cast no shadows. And all the air was quiet. A sweet breath came from the great wood on the hillside above, and with it, at intervals, the soft murmuring call of the wild doves. Below, in the long, lovely valley, the river wound in and out between the lonely hills, and as the sun hovered and vanished into the west, a faint mist, pure white, began to rise from the hills. Dr. Raymond turned sharply to his friend. Safe? Of course it is. In itself the operation is a perfectly simple one. Any surgeon could do it. And there is no danger at any other stage? None. 
absolutely no physical danger whatsoever. I give you my word. You are always timid, Clark. Always. But you know my history. I've devoted myself to transcendental medicine for the last twenty years. I've heard myself called quack and charlatan and impostor. But all the while, I knew I was on the right path. Five years ago, I reached the goal. And since then, every day has been a preparation for what we shall do tonight. I should like to believe it is all true. Clark knit his brows and looked doubtfully at Dr. Raymond. Are you perfectly sure, Raymond, that your theory is not a phantasmagoria? Splendid vision, certainly, but a mere vision, after all. Dr. Raymond stopped in his walk and turned sharply. He was a middle-aged man, gaunt and thin, of a pale yellow complexion. But as he answered Clark and faced him, there was a flush on his cheek. Look about you, Clark. You see the mountain and hill following after hill as wave on wave. You see the woods and orchard. You see the fields of ripe corn and the meadows reaching to the reed beds by the river. You see me standing here beside you and hear my voice. But I tell you that all these things, yes, from that star that has just shone out in the sky to the solid ground beneath our feet, I say that all these are but dreams and shadows, the shadows that hide the real world from our eyes. There is a real world, but it is beyond this glamour and this vision, beyond these chases and arras, dreams in a career. Beyond them all as beyond a veil. I do not know whether any human being has ever lifted that veil, but I do know, Clark, that you and I shall see it lifted this very night from before another's eyes. You may think this all strange nonsense. It may be strange, but it is true. And the ancients knew what lifting the veil means. They called it seeing the god Pan. Clark shivered. The white mist gathering over the river was chilly. It is wonderful indeed, he said. We are standing on the brink of a strange world, Raymond, if what you say is true. I suppose the knife is absolutely necessary. Yes, a slight lesion in the gray matter, that is all. A trifling rearrangement of certain cells. A microscopical alteration that would escape the attention of ninety-nine brain specialists out of a hundred. I don't want to bother you with shop, Clark. I might give you a mass of technical detail which would sound very imposing and would leave you as enlightened as you are now. But I suppose you have read, casually, in out-of-the-way corners of your paper— that immense strides have been made recently in the physiology of the brain. I saw a paragraph the other day about Digby's theory and Brown Faber's discoveries. Theories and discoveries? Where they are standing now, I stood fifteen years ago, and I need not tell you that I have not been standing still for the last fifteen years. 
It will be enough if I say that five years ago I made the discovery that I alluded to when I said that ten years ago I reached the goal. After years of labor, after years of toiling and groping in the dark, after days and nights of disappointments and sometimes of despair, in which I used now and then to tremble and grow cold with the thought that perhaps there were others seeking for what I sought, at last, after so long, a pang of sudden joy thrilled my soul, and I knew the long journey was at an end. By what seemed then, and still seems, a chance, the suggestion of a moment's idle thought followed up upon familiar lines and paths that I had tracked a hundred times already. The great truth burst upon me, and I saw, mapped out in lines of sight, a whole world, a sphere unknown. Continents and islands, and great oceans in which no ship has sailed, to my belief, since a man first lifted up his eyes and beheld the sun, and the stars of heaven, and the quiet earth beneath. You will think this is all high-flown language, Clark, but it is hard to be literal. And yet, I do not know whether what I am hinting at cannot be set forth in plain and lonely terms. For instance, this world of ours is pretty well girded now with the telegraph wires and cables. Thought, with something less than the speed of thought, flashes from sunrise to sunset, from north to south, across the floods and the desert places. Suppose that an electrician of today were suddenly to perceive that he and his friends have merely been playing with pebbles and mistaking them for the foundations of the world. Suppose that such a man saw utmost space lie open before the current, and words of men flash forth to the sun, and beyond the sun into the systems beyond, and the voice of articulate-speaking men echo in the waste void that bounds our thoughts. As analogies go, that is a pretty good analogy of what I have done. You can understand now a little of what I felt as I stood here one evening. It was a summer evening, and the valley looked much as it does now. I stood here and saw before me the unutterable, the unthinkable gulf that yawns profound between two worlds. The world of matter and the world of spirit. I saw the great empty deep stretch dim before me, and in that instant a bridge of light leapt from the earth to the unknown shore, and the abyss was spanned. You may look in Brown Faber's book, if you like, and you will find that the present-day men of science are unable to account for the presence, or to specify the functions of a certain group of nerve cells in the brain. That group is, as it were, land to let a mere waste place for fanciful theories. I am not in the position of Brown Faber and the specialists. I am perfectly instructed as to the possible functions of those nerve centers in the scheme of things. With a touch, I can bring them into play. With a touch, I say, I can set free the current 
With a touch, I can complete the communication between this world of sense and... We shall be able to finish the sentence later on. Yes, the knife is necessary. But think what that knife will affect. It will level utterly the solid wall of sense. And probably, for the first time since man was made, a spirit will gaze on a spirit world. Clark, Mary will see the god Pan. But you remember what you wrote to me? I thought it would be requisite that she— He whispered the rest into the doctor's ear. Not at all, not at all. That is nonsense, I assure you. Indeed, it is better as it is. I am quite certain of that. Consider the matter well, Raymond. It's a great responsibility. Something might go wrong. You would be a miserable man for the rest of your days. No, I think not, even if the worst happened. As you know, I rescued Mary from the gutter and from almost certain starvation when she was a child. I think her life is mine to use as I see fit. Come, it's getting late. We had better go in. Dr. Raymond led the way into the house, through the hall, and down a long, dark passage. He took a key from his pocket and opened a heavy door, and motioned Clark into his laboratory. It had once been a billiard room, and was lighted by a glass dome in the center of the ceiling whence there still shone a sad gray light on the figure of the doctor, as he lit a lamp with a heavy shade and placed it on a table in the middle of the room. Clark looked about him. Scarcely a foot of wall remained bare. There were shelves all around, laden with bottles and files of all shapes and colors, and at one end stood a little Chippendale bookcase. Raymond pointed to this. You see that parchment? Oswald Crolius? He was one of the first to show me the way, though I don't think he ever found it himself. That is a strange saying of his. In every grain of wheat there lies hidden the soul of a star. There was not much furniture in the laboratory. The table in the center, a stone slab with a drain in one corner, the two armchairs on which Raymond and Clark were sitting. That was all, except an odd-looking chair at the furthest end of the room. Clark looked at it and raised his eyebrows. Yes, that is the chair, said Raymond. We may as well place it in position. He got up and wheeled the chair to the light and began raising and lowering it, letting down the seat, setting the back at various angles, and adjusting the footrest. It looked comfortable enough, and Clark passed his hand over the soft green velvet as the doctor manipulated the levers. Now, Clark, make yourself quite comfortable. I have a couple hours' work before me. I was obliged to leave certain matters to the last. Raymond went to the stone slab, and Clark watched him drearily as he bent over a row of files and lit the flame under the crucible. The doctor had a small hand lamp shaded as the larger one, on a ledge above his apparatus, and Clark, who sat in the shadows, looked down at the great shadowy room, wondering at the bizarre effects of brilliant light and undefined darkness contrasting with one another.
Soon he became conscious of an odd odor. At first the merest suggestion of odor in the room, and as it grew more decided, he felt surprised that he was not reminded of the chemist's shop or the surgery. Clark found himself idly endeavoring to analyze the sensation, and half-conscious he began to think of a day, fifteen years ago, that he had spent roaming through the woods and meadows near his own home. It was a burning day at the beginning of August. The heat had dimmed the outlines of all things and all distances with a faint mist, and people who observed the thermometer spoke of an abnormal register, of a temperature that was almost tropical. Strangely, that wonderful hot day of the fifties rose up again in Clark's imagination. The sense of dazzling, all-pervading sunlight seemed to blot out the shadows and the gusts above his face, saw the shimmer rising from the turf, and heard the myriad murmur of the summer. I hope the smell doesn't annoy you, Clark. There's nothing unwholesome about it. It may make you a bit sleepy, that's all. Clark heard the words quite distinctly and knew that Raymond was speaking to him, but for the life of him he could not rouse himself from his lethargy. He could only think of the lonely walk he had taken fifteen years ago. It was his last look at the fields and woods he had known since he was a child, and now it all stood out in brilliant light as a picture before him. Above all, there came to his nostrils the scent of summer, the smell of flowers mingled, and the odor of the woods, of cool shaded places deep in the green depths, drawn forth by the sun's heat, and the scent of the good earth, lying as it were with arms stretched forth and smiling lips overpowered all. His fancies made him wander, as he had wandered long ago, from the fields into the wood, tracking a little path between the shining undergrowth of beech trees. And the trickle of water dropping from the limestone rock sounded as a clear melody in the dream. Thoughts began to go astray and to mingle with other thoughts. The beech alley was transformed to a path between ilex trees, and here and there a vine climbed from bough to bough and sent up waving tendrils, and drooped with purple grapes, and the sparse gray-green leaves of a wild olive tree stood out against the dark shadows of the ilex. Clark, in the deep folds of dream, was conscious that the path from his father's house had led him into an undiscovered country, and he was wondering at the strangeness of it all, when suddenly, in place of the hum and murmur of the summer, an infinite silence seemed to fall on all things, and the wood was hushed, and for a moment in time he stood face to face there with a presence that was neither man nor beast, neither the living nor the dead, but all things mingled, the form of all things, but devoid of all form. And in that moment the sacrament of body and soul was dissolved, and a voice seemed to cry, Let us go hence. And then the darkness of darkness beyond the stars, the darkness of everlasting.
When Clark woke up with the start, he saw Raymond pouring a few drops of some oily fluid into a green file, which he stoppered tightly. You have been dozing, he said. The journey must have tired you out. It is done now. I'm going to fetch Mary. I shall be back in ten minutes. Clark lay back in his chair and wondered. It seemed as if he had but passed from one dream into another. He half expected to see the walls of the laboratory melt and disappear, and to awaken London, shuddering at his own sleeping fancies. But at last the door opened, and the doctor returned, and behind him came a girl of about seventeen, dressed all in white. She was so beautiful that Clark did not wonder at what the doctor had written to him. She was blushing now over face and neck and arms, but Raymond seemed unmoved. Mary, he said, the time has come. You are quite free. Are you willing to trust yourself to me entirely? Yes, dear. You hear that, Clark? You are my witness. Here is the chair, Mary. It is quite easy. Just sit in it and lean back. Are you ready? Yes, dear, quite ready. Give me a kiss before you begin. The doctor stooped and kissed her mouth kindly enough. Now shut your eyes, he said. The girl closed her eyelids as if she were tired and longed for sleep, and Raymond placed the green file to her nostrils. Her face grew white, whiter than her dress. She struggled faintly, and then, with the feeling of submission strong within her, crossed her arms upon her breast as a little child about to say her prayers. The bright light of the lamp fell full upon her, and Clark watched changes fleeting over her face, as the changes of the hills when the summer clouds float across the sun. And then she lay all white and still, and the doctor turned up one of her eyelids. She was quite unconscious. Raymond pressed hard on one of the levers, and the chair instantly sank back. Clark saw him cutting away a circle, like a tonsure, from her hair, and the lamp was moved nearer. Raymond took a small, glittering instrument from a little case, and Clark turned away, shudderingly. When he looked again, the doctor was binding up the wound he had made. She will awake in five minutes. Raymond was still perfectly cool. There is nothing more to be done. We can only wait. The minutes passed slowly. They could hear a slow, heavy ticking. There was an old clock in the passage. Clark felt sick and faint. His knees shook beneath him. He could hardly stand. Suddenly, as they watched, they heard a long-drawn sigh, and suddenly did the color that had vanished return to the girl's cheeks, and suddenly her eyes opened. Clark quailed before them. They shone with an awful light, looking far away, and a great wonder fell upon her face, and her hands stretched out as if to touch what was invisible. But in an instant, the wonder faded and gave place to the most awful terror. The muscles of her face were hideously convulsed. She shook from head to foot. The soul seemed struggling and shuddering within the house of flesh. 
It was a horrible sight, and Clark rushed forward as she fell shrieking to the floor. Three days later, Raymond took Clark to Mary's bedside. She was lying wide awake, rolling her head from side to side and grinning vacantly. Yes, said the doctor, still quite cool. It is a great pity. She is a hopeless idiot. However, it could not be helped. And, after all, she has seen the great god Pan. 2. Mr. Clark's Memoirs Mr. Clark, the gentleman chosen by Dr. Raymond to witness the strange experiment of the god Pan, was a person in whose character caution and curiosity were oddly mingled. In his sober moments, he thought of the unusual and eccentric with undisguised aversion. And yet, deep in his heart, there was a wide-eyed inquisitiveness with respect to all the more recondite and esoteric elements in the nature of men. The latter tendency had prevailed when he accepted Raymond's invitation, for though his considered judgment had always repudiated the doctor's theories as the wildest nonsense, yet he secretly hugged a belief in fantasy and would have rejoiced to see that belief confirmed. The horrors that he witnessed in the dreary laboratory were to a certain extent salutary. He was conscious of being involved in an affair not altogether reputable, and for many years afterwards he clung bravely to the commonplace and rejected all occasions of occult investigation. Indeed, on some homeopathic principle, he, for some time, attended the seances of distinguished mediums, hoping that the clumsy tricks of these gentlemen would make him altogether disgusted with mysticism of every kind. But the remedy, though caustic, was not efficacious. Clark knew that he still pined for the unseen, and little by little the old passion began to reassert itself as the face of Mary, shuddering and convulsed with an unknown terror, faded slowly from his memory. Occupied all day in pursuits both serious and lucrative, the temptation to relax in the evening was too great, especially in the winter months, when the fire cast a warm glow over his snug bachelor apartment, and a bottle of some choice claret stood ready by his elbow. His dinner digested, he would make a brief pretense of reading the evening paper. But the mere catalogue of news soon palled upon him, and Clark would find himself casting glances of warm desire in the direction of an old Japanese bureau, which stood at a pleasant distance from the hearth. Like a boy before a jam closet, for a few minutes he would hover indecisive. But lust always prevailed, and Clark ended by drawing up his chair lighting a candle, and sitting down before the bureau. Its pigeonholes and drawers teemed with documents of the most morbid subjects. And in the well reposed a large manuscript volume, in which he had painfully entered the gems of his collection. Clark had a fine contempt for published literature. The most ghostly story ceased to interest him if it happened to be printed. His sole pleasure was in the reading, compiling, and rearranging what he called his memoirs to prove the existence of the devil, and engaged in this pursuit the evening seemed to fly 
and the night appeared too short. On one particular evening, an ugly December night, black with fog and raw with frost, Clark hurried over his dinner and scarcely deigned to observe his customary ritual of taking up the paper and laying it down again. He paced two or three times up and down the room, and opened the bureau, stood for a moment, and sat down. He leant back, absorbed in one of those dreams to which he was subject, and at length drew out his book and opened it at the last entry. There were three or four pages densely covered with Clark's round, set penmanship, and at the beginning he had written, in a somewhat larger hand, Singular narrative told me by my friend Dr. Phillips. He assures me that all the facts related therein are strictly and wholly true, but refuses to give either the surnames of the persons concerned or the place where these extraordinary events occurred. Mr. Clark began to read over the account for the tenth time, glancing now and then at the pencil notes he had made when it was told him by his friend. It was one of his humors to pride himself on a certain literary ability. He thought well of his style and took pains in arranging the circumstances in dramatic order. He read the following story. The persons concerned in the statement are Helen V., who, if she is still alive, must now be a woman of twenty-three, Rachel M., since deceased, who was a year younger than the above, and Trevor W., an imbecile, aged eighteen. These persons were at the period of the story inhabitants of a village on the borders of Wales, a place of some importance in the time of the Roman occupation, but now a scattered hamlet of not more than five hundred souls. It is situated on rising ground, about six miles from the sea, and is sheltered by a large and picturesque forest. Some eleven years ago, Helen V. came to the village under rather peculiar circumstances. It is understood that she, being an orphan, was adopted in her infancy by a distant relative, who brought her up in his own house until she was twelve years old. Thinking, however, that it would be better for the child to have playmates of her own age, he advertised in several local papers for a good home in a comfortable farmhouse for a girl of twelve. And this advertisement was answered by Mr. R., a well-to-do farmer in the above-mentioned village. His references proving satisfactory, the gentleman sent his adopted daughter to Mr. R. with a letter in which he stipulated that the girl should have a room to herself, and stated that her guardians need be at no trouble in the matter of education, as she was already sufficiently educated for the position in life which she would occupy. In fact, Mr. R. was given to understand that the girl be allowed to find her own occupations and to spend her time almost as she liked. Mr. R. duly met her at the nearest station, a town seven miles away from his house, and that seems to have remarked nothing extraordinary about the child except that she was reticent as to her former life and her adopted father. She was, however, of a very different type from the inhabitants of the village. Her skin was a pale, clear olive, and her features were strongly marked, as of somewhat foreign character. She appears to have settled down easily enough into farmhouse life, 
and became a favorite with the children, who sometimes went with her on her rambles in the forest, for this was her amusement. Mr. R. states that he has known her to go out by herself directly after their early breakfast, and not return until after dusk, and that, feeling uneasy at a young girl being out alone for so many hours, he communicated with her adopted father, who replied in a brief note that Helen must do as she chose. In the winter, when the forest paths are impassable, she spent most of her time in her bedroom, where she slept alone, according to the instructions of her relative. It was one of these expeditions to the forest that the first of the singular incidents with which this girl is connected occurred, the date being about a year after her arrival at the village. The preceding winter had been remarkably severe, the snow drifting to a great depth, and the frost continuing for an unexampled period, and the summer following was as noteworthy for its extreme heat. On one of the very hottest days in this summer, Helen V. left the farmhouse for one of her long rambles in the forest, taking with her, as usual, some bread and meat for lunch. She was seen by some men in the fields making for the old Roman road, a green causeway which traverses the highest part of the wood, and they were astonished to observe that the girl had taken off her hat, though the heat of the sun was already tropical. As it happened, a laborer, Joseph W. by name, was working in the forest near the Roman road, and at twelve o'clock his little son Trevor brought the man his dinner of bread and cheese. After the meal, the boy, who was about seven years old at the time, left his father at work and, as he said, went to look for flowers in the wood. And the man, who could hear him shouting with delight at his discoveries, felt no uneasiness. Suddenly, however, he was horrified at hearing the most dreadful screams, evidently the result of great terror, proceeding from the direction in which his son had gone. And he hastily threw down his tools and ran to see what had happened. Tracing his path by the sound, he met the little boy, who was running headlong and was evidently terribly frightened and on questioning him, the man elicited that after picking a posy of flowers, he felt tired and lay down on the grass and fell asleep. He was suddenly awakened, as he stated, by a peculiar noise, a sort of singing, he called it, and on peeping through the branches he saw Helen V. playing on the grass with a strange naked man, who he seemed unable to describe more fully. He said he felt dreadfully frightened and ran away crying for his father. Joseph W. proceeded in the direction indicated by his son and found Helen V. sitting on the grass in the middle of a glade or open space left by charcoal burners. He angrily charged her with frightening his little boy, but she entirely denied the accusation and laughed at the child's story of a strange man to which he himself did not attach much credence. Joseph W. came to the conclusion that the boy had woke up with a sudden fright, as children sometimes do, but Trevor persisted in his story, and continued in such evident distress that at last his father took him home, hoping that his mother would be able to soothe him. For many weeks, however, the boy gave his parents much anxiety. 
he became nervous and strange in his manner, refusing to leave the cottage by himself, and constantly alarming the household by waking in the night with cries of, The man in the wood! Father! Father! In course of time, however, the impression seemed to have worn off, and about three months later he accompanied his father to the home of a gentleman in the neighborhood, for whom Joseph W. occasionally did work. The man was shown into the study, and the little boy was left sitting in the hall, and a few minutes later, while the gentleman was giving W. his instructions, they were both horrified by a piercing shriek and the sound of a fall and rushing out they found the child lying senseless on the floor, his face contorted with terror. The doctor was immediately summoned, and after some examination he pronounced the child to be suffering from a kind of fit, apparently produced by a sudden shock. The boy was taken to one of the bedrooms, and after some time recovered consciousness but only to pass into a condition described by the medical man as one of violent hysteria. The doctor exhibited a strong sedative, and in the course of two hours pronounced him fit to walk home. But in passing through the hall, the paroxysms of fear returned, and with additional violence. The father perceived that the child was pointing at some object, and heard the old cry, The man in the wood! and looked in the direction indicated, saw a stone head of grotesque appearance, which had been built into the wall above one of the doors. It seems the owner of the house had recently made alterations in his premises, and on digging the foundations for some offices, the men had found a curious head, evidently of the Roman period, which had been placed in the manner described. The head is pronounced by the most experienced archaeologists of the district to be that of a fawn or satire. Dr. Phillips tells me that he has seen the head in question and assures me that he has never received such a vivid presentation of intense evil. From whatever cause arising, this second shock seemed too severe for the boy Trevor, and at the present date he suffers from a weakness of intellect which gives but little promise of amending. The matter caused a good deal of sensation at the time, and the girl Helen was closely questioned by Mr. R., but to no purpose, she steadfastly denying that she had frightened or in any way molested Trevor. The second event, with which this girl's name is connected, took place about six years ago, and is of a still more extraordinary character. At the beginning of the summer of 1882, Helen contracted a friendship of a peculiarly intimate character with Rachel M., the daughter of a prosperous farmer in the neighborhood. This girl, who was a year younger than Helen, was considered by most people to be the prettier of the two, though Helen's features had to a great extent softened as she became older. The two girls, who were together on every available opportunity, presented a singular contrast. The one with her clear olive skin and almost Italian appearance, and the other of the proverbial red and white of our rural districts. It must be stated that the payments made to Mr. R. for the maintenance of Helen were known in the village for their excessive liberality, and the impression was general 
that she would one day inherit a large sum of money from her relative. The parents of Rachel were therefore not averse from their daughter's friendship with the girl, and even encouraged the intimacy, though they now bitterly regret having done so. Helen still retained her extraordinary fondness for the forest, and on several occasions Rachel accompanied her, the two friends setting out early in the morning, and remaining in the wood until dusk. Once or twice after these excursions, Mrs. M. thought her daughter's manner rather peculiar. She seemed languid and dreamy, and as it had been expressed, different from herself. But these peculiarities seemed to have been thought too trifling for remark. One evening, however, after Rachel had come home, her mother heard a noise which sounded like suppressed weeping in the girl's room, and on going in found her lying, half undressed, upon the bed, evidently in the greatest distress. As soon as she saw her mother, she exclaimed, Ah, mother, mother, why did you let me go to the forest with Helen? Mrs. M. was astonished at so strange a question, and proceeded to make inquiries. Rachel told her a wild story. She said, Clark closed the book with a snap, and turned his chair towards the fire. When his friend sat one evening in that very chair and told his story, Clark had interrupted him at a point a little subsequent to this, had cut short his words in a paroxysm of horror. My God! he had exclaimed. Think, think what you are saying. It is too incredible, too monstrous. Such things can never be in this quiet world, where men and women live and die, and struggle and conquer or maybe fail, and fall down upon sorrow, and grieve and suffer strange fortunes for many a year. But not this, Phillips, not such things as this. There must be some explanation, some way out of the terror. Why, man, if such a case were possible, our earth would be a nightmare. But Phillips had told his story to the end, concluding, Her flight remains a mystery to this day. She vanished in broad sunlight. They saw her walking in a meadow, and a few moments later, she was not there. Clark tried to conceive the thing again as he sat by the fire, and again his mind shuddered and shrank back, appalled before the sight of such awful, unspeakable elements enthroned, as it were, and triumphant in human flesh. Before him stretched the long, dim vista of the green causeway in the forest, as his friend had described it. He saw the swaying leaves, and the quivering shadows of the grass. He saw the sunlight and the flowers, and far away, far in the long distance, the two figures moved toward him. One was Rachel, but the other? Clark had tried his best to disbelieve it all, but at the end of the account, as he had written it in his book, he had placed the inscription, a diabolus incarnate est. A homo factus est.
That was part one of Arthur Mackin's The Great God Pan, as read by me. My personal page is in the show notes. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now, consider supporting our podcast on Patreon by the link in the show notes, and like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts, so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Leitze. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week as we unhinge your mind with more Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.